Legacy Podcasts present Torque, a novel by Ty Drago, performed for you by the author, and featuring music by Nicholas Allen Nelson. The Fourth Cog. What are you staring at? Lucy demanded. Rand's face reddened. He'd felt someone's gaze on him and had glanced toward the lift platform, where his eyes locked with those of an upper lass. Hers were green, not the brown common to the lower folk. At first he guessed she was a maid, upper-born but still a servant, who'd come shopping in the middle market for her betters. But on second look, this was no maid. Her yellow hair was styled so intricately in an assortment of curls, locks, and braids that it barely seemed real and her clothes were of tailored linen, not the plain woolen fabrics that servants in the uppers wore. No, she was nobody's maid, and not even an ordinary upper lass. This was an upper lady, so were her two friends. Rand expected to see the familiar expression of disdain that upper folk typically wore when forced to look at a bowels rat, but it wasn't there. Instead, he read curiosity and maybe appraisal, as if he were a puzzle she was trying to solve. Then Torque steam vaulted over the drop and landed right behind her. As one of her friends screamed and fainted, the upper lady turned to face the hero. Rand figured Torque would swipe her purse and vault again, raining the stolen coin over the lower folk crowd before the keepers could stop him. A common occurrence. Instead, all he did was say something, kiss the lass's hands, and then run off, disappearing over the far side of the platform with the keepers on his heels. Got an eye for upper lasses all of a sudden? Lucy asked sourly. Rand replied, No, it's just weird that Torque didn't... Then came the shot. Rand whirled toward the sound, his heart in his throat. The sharp crack had come from the church quarter, toward where Torque had fled. A moment later, it was followed by a keeper's excited shout, I hit him, boys! He's wounded! This way! Torque was often shot at, but Rand had never heard of him actually being hit. If such a thing had happened, then the lowest champion needed help. The lifts in their adjacent platform occupied most of one whole edge of the market. Getting around them meant zigzagging through the rows of shops and cutting through a narrow tunnel that ran behind the lift mechanisms. Rand knew the route. It was too long. The quick path would take him over the platform itself, through the line of keepers guarding it, and then past the upper folk they were guarding, none of whom would be happy to see him. But if Torque had, in fact, been shot... Rand! Lucy exclaimed. Don't even think about it! You can't... Rand took off running. As he bolted through the middle market, the nearby lower folk buzzed about the show Torque had given them. Some were shrinking back from the sound of the gunshot, but others stayed put, probably thinking it was all more Torque-related fun. To some lower folk, especially stainers and traders, Torque wasn't real exactly. He was entertainment, something to take their mind off their troubles. Interesting, but not important. Rand usually pitied them, but just now, their apathy disgusted him. Ahead, he saw four of the lifts begin their ascent. The upper folk on the platform, probably spooked by Torque's invasion, were heading home. Rand watched the cars rise ever higher, pulled by their taut chains, before disappearing into the drop, leaving behind the middle machine. The middle was basically just an enormous knot, far and away the largest. Geographically, it was separated into three sections, the middle market, the church quarter, and the enormous factory district, with its dozens of gigantic repurposed gearboxes, which occupied all of the space on the far side of the drop. It was there that Torque and the keepers had fought. 
Surrounding the middle on all sides were the outer walls of the machine, featureless and impenetrable. The machine had no windows, no doors, nothing at all to indicate what existed outside its borders. Because nothing did. There was only the machine, alone in what everyone called the nowhere. The drop opened up in the center of the middle ceiling, and then opened again in its floor, with nothing in between but empty space, and, of course, the lifts. These were the only means of getting from the uppers to the middle and back again. No ladders, no stairs, not even pipes. Just these gadgets. Each hugged a girder mounted into the rear of the lift platform, which extended vertically all the way up to the middle ceiling more than a hundred feet overhead. Once there, they vanished into the upper drop. Where the lifts went after that was a mystery, at least to Rand. Such conveyances weren't for the likes of him. The platform itself was a wide raised dais overlooking the drop. Here, the wealthy gathered and waited for keepers to escort them down into the market proper. The broad, ornate staircase which connected the platform to the maze of shops was guarded by a double brace of keepers, four stone-faced upper luds who doggedly maintained their post despite Torque's appearance. No way would they let Rand pass. What are you going to do? A small voice asked. Still running, Rand glanced back to see No Name following him, somehow keeping pace despite his much shorter legs. Go back, Rand barked. No Name ignored him. The line of keepers was up ahead now, partially obscured by the lower folk onlookers. They hadn't yet noticed Rand's approach, but they would. Lucy often told him he was too big to miss. Just stay out of the way, he snapped at No Name. Then, as the last of the lower folk leapt aside to let him pass, Rand came face to face with the keepers. All four upper luds reacted instantly, reaching for their pistols and swords. Rand charged them, intending to rush between the middle two and shove them into the other two, hopefully knocking them all down. That would buy him time to reach the platform. Once there, Rand didn't think they'd risk shooting him in the back, not with the remaining upper folk potentially in the line of fire. He hoped. But then No Name darted ahead of him, moving with shocking swiftness. The keepers, being focused on Rand, didn't seem to notice him. Wordlessly, No Name swung his satchel into the face of the first upper lud. Startled, the keepers staggered, drawing the others' attention. As they turned, the ludling slipped around behind them, moving like quicksilver, and swung his satchel again, this time hammering a second keeper's head hard enough to drop him to his knees. The last two drew their weapons and whirled around, towering over the little lud which was when Rand arrived. He hit the two uninjured keepers first, elbowing one and boxing the ears of another. Both men went down. Next, he grabbed another keeper, the one off balance from No Name's initial blow, and slammed him back down atop the keeper still on his knees. Their heads connected with a loud thunk, and they joined their colleagues on the floor of the knot. Around them, the crowd scattered. It was never a good idea to be on hand when keepers were attacked. Solid, Rand told No Name. You too, the Ludling replied. Together they rushed up the stairs. The only folk left on the platform were the upper lady and her two friends, one of whom was still sprawled unconscious on the floor. The moment they spotted No Name and Rand, the upper lady gasped. More, Rand thought, in surprise than alarm. Her companion, however, started screaming for the keepers. Ignoring them, Rand hurried to the far rail and looked out over the church quarter, with its converted gearboxes that served as temples to one or the other of the machine's two deities. Past them, around the drop, and in the far distance, the huge factories loomed. These boxy metal structures dwarfed everything else in the knot, some of them reaching nearly to the middle's distant ceiling. Rand could see lines of lower folk, thousands long, waiting outside each factory. 
These lines were there every hour of every day, manned by drudges who were hoping and praying to be allowed to work. Periodically, the foremen, all upper folk, came out and walked the line, as they called it, picking only the strongest for the day's labor. The rest went hungry. The sight always sickened, Rand, but there was no sign of torque. Then no name pointed. Keepers, perhaps twenty of them, were converging in the shadow of one of the largest factories, a few dozen yards from the far side of the drop. Their quarry was a man in golden armor. Go back to Lucy, Rand told no name. Who? Rand suddenly realized that he hadn't, in the rush of activity, bothered with introductions. Lucy Stamper, the redhead, she'll look after you. Go! The Ludling didn't move. You don't want to be here when more keepers show up, Rand pressed. Okay, no name said. Satisfied, Rand vaulted over the railing, dropped to the floor, and sprinted after the mob of keepers. As he passed the churches, Rand noticed that the priests and matrons had emerged from their sanctified gearboxes to witness the commotion. Each wore either the ornate silver robes of Jaism or the simple gray of root belief, and both spent their days catering to their respective flocks and defining the opposing deity as evil. The lower folk worshipped root. Lucy, who credited her healing powers to the lower's god, attended weekly services. She always dragged the twins with her, but had given up trying to coax Rand, who wasn't much of a believer. Jai, on the other hand, belonged to the upper folk. Her gearbox down here in the middle was little more than a missionary chapel. The real Jaius churches were in the uppers. Rand had heard rumors that they had one up there as big as any factory. A cathedral, they called it. Normally, Rand gave the churches little thought. But now, as he ran past them and their gawking clergy, he felt a fresh stab of anger. No giant, of course, would lift a finger to help Torque. But Root's priests often gave sermons praising the hero's bravery. Even so, none would risk the keeper's wrath by actually helping him. Seconds later, Rand rounded another corner of the drop and crossed the unmarked border into the factory district. Here, nearly all commercial goods were manufactured, from clothing to food. Here was also where most lower folk worked, those lucky enough to find employment at all. Owned exclusively by upper lords, the factories were manned by lower folk who often worked for days earning precious little coin. Though Rand had never been inside one, he'd heard about their brutal working conditions, the countless accidental deaths, and about the bodies that were unceremoniously dumped down the drop. After all, there was no shortage of replacements. Rand traced the outer wall of the nearest factory, an iron gearbox at least 60 feet tall and twice that wide. The eyes of countless lower folk watched as he hurried past them, but not one offered to help, fearful of losing their place in the work line. Like the priests, they'd do nothing to help their champion. But this time Rand felt no anger. He knew the score. In the machine, you either worked or you starved. And for most, that meant the factories. Between this gearbox and the next, a broad open area reached all the way to the lip of the drop. There, finally, Rand spotted Torque. The hero, his hero, was clearly wounded. Torque's strength had gotten him this far, but now it was flagging. His bravado was gone, replaced by a stooped stagger that was carrying him closer to the drop. His gloved hands clutched at his side, his signature gilded length of pipe apparently lost, and his armor stained with blood. Keepers closed in herding him toward the edge of the precipice. A few had drawn their pistols, but no more of them had fired. Apparently, they wanted to take the lower's champion alive. Torque looked anxiously at them, his eyes bright with pain, and could that be fear? Rand spotted the pipe. It lay about twenty feet away, near the corner of the factory he just passed, overlooked by everyone. 
Desperately, Ran made for it, shoving lower folk out of the way and snatching it off the floor. The pipe was about 18 inches long and made of gleaming gold, like all of Tork's famous armor. For a second, he marveled. Tork's pipe! Experimentally, he hefted it. He'd never handled gold before, but he'd always heard it was heavy. Very heavy. Oddly, this wasn't. Nor was it smooth and featureless, as he'd always imagined. Instead, three controls were mounted into the pipe's surface, two buttons and a lever. The buttons had small black-numbered counters beside them. One counter was currently set to four, the other stood at five, and below them, a small thumb switch was flipped downward. No labels, but then Rand couldn't have read them anyway. The pipe seemed well-balanced, and when Rand peered into one end, no light shone through. Not hollow. Torque's weapons were the blood of the machine, steam and grease. That was what the storytellers always said. In the tales they shared with lings around cook fires of scavenged coal, Torque's abilities were drawn from the magic of the god Root. After all, he was the champion of the lower folk, not the upper lords and their gadgets. That was why his chosen weapon was a length of ordinary pipe, imbued with miraculous power and turned to gold. Except this wasn't gold. Gold-plated, probably. But what really shocked Rand was the little thumb crank built into the lower side of the pipe. Designed to be inconspicuous, its purpose was nevertheless clear. Turning the crank charged an internal battery, which then powered the pipe. It was the way all electrical gadgets worked, though Rand had seen precious few of them in his life. This wasn't magic. This was mech. What are you doing? A voice called. Rand startled, thinking the words had been meant for him, but instead they'd been shouted at the line of keepers, who'd closed ranks around their long-sought quarry like hungry rats in the dark and the speaker had been Torque. Except he didn't sound like Torque. No humor or mockery. This Lud sounded terrified and in pain. What did you do to me? The champion wailed, retreating until the heels of his boots hung over the drop, the machine emptying behind him. Rank could read the trapped expression behind his mask. Pipe in hand, he charged to his hero's rescue. Two keepers spotted him, saw the pipe, and raised their pistols. Almost without thinking, Rand pointed one end of the pipe at them, pressed the left-hand button, and hoped for the best. A jet of scalding vapor fired out from its business end, catching both men in the face and knocking them backward into their comrades. A half-dozen of them dropped together in a tangle of arms and legs, their pistols scattering. Another keeper lunged at him, but Rand swung the pipe, catching the lead across the temple. He went down, only to have two others take his place, sabers drawn. Rand fumbled for the pipe's other button and pressed it. As he'd hoped, a steam of black grease soaked the keeper's boots. Both men immediately slipped and fell, their heads clunking together loud enough to be heard. But there were more. Too many more. Torque gaped at Rand with desperate horror, swaying at the drop's edge. He said something, but given the cries of the surrounding keepers, Rand couldn't hear him. Then, as four more keepers rushed them, their pistols drawn, the lowest champion recoiled one last time. With a cry, his arms pinwheeling, he toppled backward. Rand instinctively reached out, managing to clamp one big hand around Torque's gilded wrist. Unfortunately, the hasty move had cost him his own balance. It only took him a half-second to realize his mistake, but that was a half-second too long. Rand felt Torque's weight tilt him over the edge. Son of a rat turd, he thought. An instant later, the two of them went tumbling into the inky blackness of the drop. The Fifth Cog 
As they fell, Torque screamed. Ran didn't. Instead, as the ambient light faded above them, he watched his hero flail his armored limbs and squeal like a terrified rat. As if any of that was going to help matters. This wasn't Ran's first tumble into a drop. But those had all been into simple gaps between gearboxes, ten, maybe twenty feet deep, survivable, as long as you kept your wits and knew what to do. But this was the drop. The trick to surviving any fall was to break your momentum, slow your descent. Fortunately, most drops had hanging scraps of cable, narrow ledges, or jagged piping that you could use if you were quick enough, and if the drop wasn't too wide. Well, this drop was very wide, very deep, and far too dark to see much of anything. Of course, being tangled up with this screaming, struggling lud only complicated things. Shut up, Rand snapped. He kept reminding himself that this was the lower's champion, and not just some wailing idiot gripped by panic while plummeting to his death. Keeping one hand clamped around Torque's wrist, Rand started by leveling their fall. This was a relatively simple matter of spreading out his body to catch as much wind in the chest as possible, creating drag. Getting his hero to cooperate was harder, though after a few seconds of clumsy squirming, the Lud seemed to get the idea. Either that or he passed out, which was almost as good. Now, facing downward and with the drop's foul stench blasting up into his face, Rand did a little mental math. He knew roughly how deep the drop was, and after carrying a couple of twos, calculated that they had about 20 seconds before they'd both hit the bottom. Hard. A third of a minute. Okay. Still gripping Torque's pipe, Rand's thumb found the switch and flipped it. A beam of light shone from the pipe's end. That helped. He directed the light downward to see a drop that appeared unobstructed, nothing much between them and the floor. Not that the floor was visible yet. Torque's pipe lamp only reached a few hundred feet before its light drowned in the gloom. They were going very deep. The old places. The idea sent a chill around Rand's back, which was ridiculous. Once they hit bottom, the ancient spirits rumored to haunt the lowest places of the machine would find nothing to torment but a couple of hundred pounds of fleshy paste. Unless Rand could somehow slow them down. He glanced at Torque, who'd gone limp. Passed out, no doubt about it. No help there. If the two of them were going to survive this, Rand would have to make it happen without his hero's input. Seconds later, the floor rose into view, a featureless rectangle of sludge, a congealed conglomeration of the waste, sewage, and refuse that forever rained into the drop from both the uppers and lowers, coming up at them fast, way too fast, now or never. Rand prayed to no one. He said no silent goodbyes, not to Lucy, not to anybody. He simply did what he always did. He did what felt right. Keeping the pipe pointed firmly downward, Rand mimicked his hero. Torque was renowned for his ability to defy gravity, a tactic frequently used when eluding keepers, and it always involves steam. Pulling the gilded lud into a tight, one-armed hug, Rand took a deep breath and pressed the steam button. A jet of hot vapor blasted downward at the approaching floor, its opposing force hammering the strange mech up into Rand's midsection, but he held on tight, gritting his teeth. Then, as the button counter flipped from four to three, he felt their descent begin to slow. Abruptly, the steam stopped. Turd! They started falling again. The floor surged upward like a big, smelly pile of death. Rats covered it almost from wall to wall, feasting on the more or less unending bounty that fell from above. Rand hit the button again. More steam erupted downward, the recoil shaking him like a limp rag. But they slowed some more. The counter dropped from three to two. 
Below, rats squealed and scattered away. The steam stopped. At the same instant, Rand landed feet first in hip-deep congealed garbage. The impact slammed up his spine, but he'd planned for it, bending his knees and keeping his feet shoulder-width apart to help distribute his weight. Torque, who still hung limply inside one of Rand's arms, flapped like an oily rag. But somehow Rand managed to hold on to him. Alive. Both of them were still alive. Not bad, he thought. Rand put Torque on his feet, only to have the lud collapse limply and disappear beneath the piles of cold, cloying muck. Cursing, Rand tucked the pipe under one arm and used both hands to haul his hero back up. The lud was still unconscious, though to be fair, some of that was probably blood loss. Rand searched for something that might resemble shelter and spotted it, an arched tunnel set into one of the rusted walls. Beyond it lay perfect blackness. Ignoring all the stories he'd heard about hungry spirits, Rand dragged Torque through the foul-smelling swill and into that tunnel. It was even colder here than in the muck, but at least it was dry and, at present, free of vermin. There he laid Torque down and used the pipe lamp to examine the man's stomach wound. The blood looked black, mixed with bile. Rand's heart sank. Torque's liver had been hit. The hero stirred, groaned. Get that light out of my eyes, he begged. Rand averted the beam, but kept the pipe lamp lit. Without it, the blackness would smother them both. Who are you? The gilded man gasped. Rand Roberts. The name, of course, meant nothing to the hero. Why would it? After all, this was Torque, the lower's champion and Rand was nothing but a bowels rat. They shot me. He sounded more astonished than angry. Yeah, and they deaded you too. Which was more honesty than the Lud probably needed, but Lucy, the healer, was the one with the bedside manner. Torque said, That wasn't the deal. Deal? Rand supposed he should be advising the Lud not to talk, but why bother? Talk or not, Torque was going to die here, so he might as well say what he wanted. Damned Pinkerton, the hero muttered. An unfamiliar name sounded upper, but that couldn't be right. Torque was a lower lud. What possible deal could he have had with the upper lords? Obviously none, otherwise the keepers wouldn't have shot him. Torque's gloved fingers started fumbling at a small pocket that had been built into the waistband of his armor. What? Rand asked. How can I help? But the hero didn't reply. Finally, he managed to fish out a slip of paper. No. Not paper. A photograph. Photographs were rare in the lowers. The upper lords, some said, surrounded themselves with the captured images of loved ones' friends or even themselves. To Rand that seemed pointless. He knew what his friends looked like, and he felt no particular desire to see his own face. Torque handed the photograph to Rand, who peered at it. An upper lass. Rand's age or a little older. Pretty. Smiling for the camera. Familiar. Tell... Ainsley, Torque whispered. I wish she could have loved me, but at least I got to see her one last time. The hero's body stiffened, then relaxed with an unmistakable finality. Rand knew death when he saw it. It didn't seem real, and not in the least because this Lud was so unlike the Torque that Rand had grown up first admiring and then emulating. That Torque had always been larger than life, a living legend. If not immortal, then certainly deserving of a nobler end than this one. Pocketing the photograph, Rand reverently touched the gilded mask. It felt cool. Tracing its edges, he located a hinge and lifted it up and back, 
revealing the face beneath. A stranger, clean-shaven, maybe twenty years old, pale hair cut short, high cheekbones, a thin, pointed nose. Very uppers-looking, which was crazy. Rand wasn't considering his own predicament, not yet. Instead, he studied the lifeless face. Who are you? he asked the dead man. Tork, of course, but also not Tork. Tork had come from the old places, born from the pain and misery of the lower folk. He was a spirit of fire and oil. He battled the keepers and defied the upper lords. He mocked and foiled them, showed them that he wouldn't be contained or controlled. Tork was free, forever and completely free. And through his freedom, the lower folk were free as well, in their way. Maybe they couldn't launch themselves through open air. Maybe they couldn't best twenty keepers in victory and laughter. But they could watch him do it, and through his example feel their own burdens lighten. Or so Rand had always believed, crafting his way of life around the single question, what would Torque do? And here was Torque, the real Torque, dead, mortal, and so small. Tell Ainsley I wish she could have loved me. Rand searched the corpse. He found the bullet hole in the armor, which shook him, as Torque's armor was supposed to be impervious to bullets. This stuff was thin, not gold, but simply gold plate, like the pipe. Lightweight enough to let a lud jump around in it, but too thin to protect against even a sword thrust. There were other concealed compartments, like the one from which Torque's dying fingers had taken Ainsley's photograph. In one of these, Rand found a small iron something, about four inches long, with a loop on its one end and a shaft lined with little teeth on its other. He had no idea what it was. He also found a folded piece of paper that, when unfolded, turned out to be a map. A map of the bowels. Rand had never seen such a thing. People got around in the lowers through experience or the advice of others. He doubted if anyone had ever bothered drawing it all up on a map. Why would they? Lower folk never made anything they couldn't wear, eat, or sell. And no one would have a use for such a thing. But apparently Torque had. There was a marked spot. A red circle drawn around a rendered section of the bowels that Rand didn't recognize. Almost certainly in the old places. Not somewhere anyone would ever willingly go. Inside this red circle were four letters. Rand studied the letters, unable to read them. Then he heard scuttling noises and guessed that the rats had returned to see what new trash had tumbled down into the knot at the bottom of the drop. They could be aggressive when food was at hand. First, he stood and heaved Torque's body onto his shoulder. Even with his armor, the lud weighed less than Rand expected. Next, he considered his predicament. He had the pipe lamp. What he lacked was the slightest notion of how to find his way back up to a familiar level. What he needed was a plan and a destination, and the circled place on the map seemed as good as any. The Sixth Cog Ainsley's ear was pressed to the vent in the rear of the pantry. In the adjacent kitchen, servants busied themselves preparing supper, polishing the silver, and filling drink orders for August Pinkerton and his guests. None of them knew she was tucked away in here, nestled behind a barrel of flour twice her size. Listening. Ainsley had discovered this spot while playing hide-and-find with her five-year-old brother Gerard. Since their mother had died, she'd indulged the boy, who preferred his much older sister over his grim-faced governess. Truthfully, Ainsley's indulgence was more about love than fun. At her age, hide-and-find held little appeal. Still, if not for that game, she might never have found such a wonderfully private spot. 
Tucked away in here, Ainsley could be more alone than anywhere else in the 43 busy, servant-laden rooms of her family's estate. These days, she came here often, having learned the right time to slip into the pantry while the cook was elsewhere. Though it wasn't until her fifth visit that she discovered her sanctuary's most interesting secret. It shared a heating duct with her father's private study. How many of your keepers fired at Torque? Her father's commanding voice demanded through the brass-fitted grate. August Pinkerton's study had been locked and forbidden throughout Ainsley's childhood. Only rarely she'd visited her father's inner sanctum, and never without his explicit permission. A deeper, more arrogant voice answered, Six, Lord Pinkerton. This was Henry Gammon, Commandant of the Keep. Ainsley had only met the terrible man once, and once was enough. Nearing sixty, he'd shouldered the responsibility of keeping the machine's peace for nearly half his life. Yet her father distrusted him, saying, Wielding too much power for too long tends to cost a man his perspective. Six, August Pinkerton exclaimed. Surely they knew better, Henry, added Proctor Edith Baird. As the upper's highest-ranking elected official, she was the only person who would dare address Commandant Gammon by his given name. Ainsley's father certainly never did. Only one of them actually tried to hit him, Gammon explained, and he's outside. Outside? August Pinkerton asked. You mean, right now? I ordered him brought here so that we could settle this matter quickly. The matter, of course, was Torque. Ainsley couldn't remember the morning's events without shuddering. She, Penelope, and Julia had decided to go down to the middle market to shop for clothes. Normally her maid did that, but today had been rainy and Ainsley bored, so she and her friends had taken a carriage to the market plaza at the edge of the drop and boarded one of the lifts. Julia had dubbed it a fun outing. But almost as soon as they'd reached the market lift platform, Torque had made his appearance. He'd been incredible. Witnessing him in action for the first time had been one of the most thrilling experiences of her life. Then he'd vaulted across the drop and landed in front of her and said her name. Then she'd said his. Stuart. But that wasn't possible. True, she hadn't seen Stuart Crichton in over a year, ever since their breakup. But Stuart was only 19, while the lowest champion had been causing trouble since before she'd been born. So, when Ainsley heard that Gammon and Baird were visiting her father, she'd guessed the reason. And here she was, crouched in the darkness at the rear of the pantry, invading her father's well-guarded privacy in the hopes of hearing... What, exactly? Her father asked, I assume this keeper's been arrested, yes? No, Lord Pinkerton, Gammon replied. Why not, Bajai? It was Edith Baird who answered, Because he's committed no crime. He killed our man, Ainsley's father exclaimed. The proctor replied patiently, Are you prepared to admit that in open court, August? Silence. Of course not. Of course not, Gammon echoed, sounding smug. There came the sound of a chair being pushed back and then the study door opening. Bring him in, the commandant ordered. Three sets of footsteps, men in heavy boots, keepers, "'At ease,' Gammon said. "'Step forward and give your name.' One set of footfalls this time, hesitant. "'My lords? My lady? I'm Keeper Reynolds. Carter Reynolds.' The following silence was at last broken by Ainsley's father. "'How long have you been a keeper, Mr. Reynolds?' "'Just a month, my lord.' The young man's manner suggested he was lesser-born, not a lowerman, of course. No lower folk served in the keep or lived or worked above the middle.' Reynolds was probably the second son of a factory foreman, someone with few prospects, to whom keepership had seemed an attractive career path. A month, Edith Baird remarked. 
A bit green to be sending to the lowers, Henry. Gammon replied, Every year we need more keepers to maintain order down there, Lady Proctor. The lower folk, for all their complaints about overwork and underpayment, seem to find time to breed like grabbers. Don't be crass, Baird admonished him. August Pinkerton said, Keeper Reynolds, did you intend to shoot Torque this morning? My lord? It's a simple question. Did you shoot Torque on purpose? Of course I did, my lord. He was resisting arrest, Gammon said. A communication breakdown. The contingent leaders have standing orders to brief all newly assigned keepers on the secret protocol. Evidently they missed one, the proctor remarked. Reynolds stammered. I don't understand. Commandant, what did they do wrong? Nothing, son, Gammon told him. The fault isn't yours. Baird said, What about this other man who fell with Torque? A boy, not a man, Ainsley's father corrected. Gammon said, Rand Roberts, a teenage bowels rat, age indeterminate, orphaned, no employment, a beggar, and a thief, probably. Not a thief, August Pinkerton corrected. According to my sources, Roberts was one of the bowels' many orphans, yes, but he neither begged nor stole. Rather, I'm told he was something of a minor celebrity known for fighting the gangs and defending the weak. Sounds rather noble, the proctor remarked. Gammon grunted dismissively. Ainsley recalled the lower boy's face. He charged up onto the market lift platform, somehow knocking down four keepers in the process. Then he'd rush to Torque's rescue, only to fall with him into the drop. Obviously, the lowest champion had meant a lot to him. Then she remembered the red-headed girl and two young boys who'd been with this Rand Roberts. How must it be for them? Ainsley recalled her grief at her own mother's passing. But then, death was more commonplace in the lowers. Or so she'd heard. Her father went on. Like many lower children, Roberts grew up listening to stories about Torque. Evidently, he started emulating him. Is it any wonder that, when he saw his hero in danger, the boy rushed to his rescue? A tragedy had ended the way it did. After a long silence, the Commandant said, Then I suggest it's time to look forward rather than back. Keeper Reynolds, you're dismissed, but before you go, please turn around. My lord? The collar of your uniform is turned up. Let me fix it for you. Oh, yes, my lord. Thank you. Then Ainsley heard a sound. A terrible sound. Like the crunch of dead leaves. After that came a heavier noise, something hitting August Pinkerton's ornate custom-woven rug. "'What are you doing, Gavin?' her father demanded. From the rattle of his chair, Ainsley was sure he jumped to his feet. Suddenly her throat went dry. "'Henry,' Edith Baird said, calm as ever, "'please explain yourself.' The commandant replied, "'Well, shooting him would have stained Lord Pinkerton's fine rug. A broken neck's much cleaner.' "'Is that supposed to be funny?' Ainsley's father demanded." That boy was innocent. No one is innocent, Gammon told him, and no one is guilty. In this machine, there are only assets and liabilities. Torque was an asset. Now he's gone. Reynolds, as his killer, might eventually have told someone something we'd rather he didn't. That made him a liability. With his death, balance is restored. August Pinkerton declared, What an utter load of language, August, the proctor admonished. Let's not make a bad situation worse. But the situation is not bad, milady. Gammon assured her. Torque has been publicly vanquished. Tragically, his vanquisher just took a bad fall and died. His memory will be venerated. There might even be a statue in it for him. And these other two men, Ainsley's father demanded, are you planning accidents for them too? 
These men are part of my personal retinue and are completely loyal to me. More silence. Finally, Baird remarked, It seems you've completed all the necessary circuits, Henry. Thank you, Proctor. Keepers, please remove our fallen comrade. Prepare him as we discussed. Yes, my lord. Ainsley stifled a cry, knowing it would give her away, and this felt like more than a bed-without-supper infraction, especially with Commandant Gammon on hand. Not that her father would let that monster hurt her. But how much control did August Pinkerton really have? Gammon said, This seems like an appropriate time to discuss the future. Tork's gone. He died too publicly to attempt another resurrection. Lord Pinkerton's long-standing policy to promote public welfare is over. The time has come for a new approach. What new approach, Henry? Edith Baird asked, sounding calm and interested. Project Vindicator. Vindicator, Ainsley's father exclaimed. I thought that horror was scrapped. I revived it some time ago, Gammon explained. I've been quietly advancing it, in case there was ever a need. It's unthinkable, August Pinkerton insisted. Baird replied, Calm down, August. Calm down. I've just witnessed a murder in my own home. I'm not saying I approve of Henry's actions where Keeper Reynolds is concerned, but neither am I naive enough to believe his actions to be completely unwarranted. You should put aside your concern for that unfortunate young man and focus instead on the challenges ahead. Gammon said, May I make a suggestion? Obviously my actions have upset Lord Pinkerton. Let's reconvene at the Keep tomorrow morning at Nine Bells. Then I can show you both exactly where we are with Project Vindicator. I think you'll be impressed. Baird asked, August, are you comfortable with that? Proctor, I'm not comfortable with any of this. August, please. Her father sighed. All right, nine bells. Gammon spoke. Then that concludes our business. Good day to you both. The meeting dispersed. Ainsley listened to her father, alone now, pace his private study. She heard him pour a drink, sit briefly at his desk, and then get up and pace the room again. She knew how he felt. Torque was dead. The lower boy ran Roberts with him, and now an innocent young keeper had been murdered while Ainsley had listened. It was all horrible, but none of it answered Ainsley's biggest question. Who was Torque? From the sound of things, he'd been her father's what? Servant? Employee? But why would Lord August Pinkerton employ a criminal? And what was Project Vindicator? Every time Ainsley closed her eyes, she saw that gilded mask and heard her name spoken from behind it. She couldn't leave it like this. There was a secret here, and crouched alone in the darkness listening to her father's unspoken pain, Ainsley Pinkerton made a silent vow. She'd discover it. Thanks for listening. We're just getting started. Rand discovers the truth about his hero in episode three of Torque by Ty Drago. If you can't bear the weight, the full novel is available in paperback and ebook formats on Amazon.com.